Hey everyone, I am excited to announce that Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed, is now available on Amazon as a side study, Volume H, in the Gospel Feast series. The book of Esther is a mysterious one. As written, it is a book with many contradictions. The name Esther means something hidden. It does contain several historical conundrums and a handful of mysteries. It is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God at all. Why? Many Jews today say that it is just fiction, because they can't find any of the characters mentioned within, historically. And yet, they celebrate the book with a major festival, annually. It is also one of the books that is required reading in the weeks before Passover, every year. Not by God, but by Esther herself. Why do this if you insist the book is just fiction? It is one of the only books that Joseph Smith made no corrections to, although he considered it to be historical. How is any of this possible? Esther reads as an eyewitness account, but then struggles with the simple, logical issues and frequently contradicts itself in some very strange ways. How come? Considering that Esther became the most powerful queen of the world's largest empire, none of this makes any sense. Or does it? Despite the wonderful story, we are left with the puzzling questions. Who was King Ahasuerus? Who was Mordecai? Who was Haman? And actually, who was Esther? The answers may just surprise you. The book is not fiction. And in fact, all of the puzzling contradictions were put in place for a very devious reason, and not by Esther. Join us on this astounding historical reconstruction and be amazed at what Esther really tried to do, and how, had she been able to accomplish what she had tried, your life would be very different right now. You think you know the book of Esther? Are you sure? Let's feast on the Word of God together and see what a woman of God can do when she really puts her mind to it. It also might make an incredible Mother's Day gift for the ladies in your life. Happy Mother's Day. You are now listening to Season 4 of the Gospel Feast Podcast. It's time to feast on the words of Jesus Christ. We are continuing our in-depth and incredible journey into the little book of Zechariah. We have been exploring a series of visions the young prophet had and have been discovering how they relate to our day also. It is just proof that the word of the Lord is really one eternal round. The good advice he gives us and the fair commandments he has given us are as useful and fruitful to those struggling in the captivity of ancient Babylon as those today struggling under the weight of our modern great beasts and world governments. So let's start listening. Zechariah's series of visions had opened with four horsemen. Four. Remember your Eastern thinking. Why is that important? The same four that John the Beloved saw in vision on the Isle of Patmos. The four horsemen rode mounts of white, red, pale, a greenish-yellow, and black horses. They had been sent by the Lord to survey the nations and return, bringing him word about their status. 
When we see them again, they are outfitted now with chariots, and they are ready to battle at the Lord's command. Zechariah 6 1. And I turned, and lifted up mine eyes, and looked, and behold, there came four chariots out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of brass. To Easterners, mountains are places of the Lord's protection and safety. As such, they can be symbols of the temple. These are made of brass. Brass was understood in the East to be judgment. Brass is a strong metal. It is made strong through trial, but once proven, it is ready for the Lord's use in judgment. You will note that these two great mountains are made of brass. One hears echoes of John again, when the Lord comes out of his temple in the heavens to judge the nations of the earth. In the first chariot were red horses, and in the second chariot black horses, and in the third chariot white horses, and in the fourth chariot grizzled and bay horses. Note the same four colors as John's Apocalypse. Chariots were the symbol of serious and skillful warfare. Chariots meant that you were playing to win. Why four? These travel the fallen earth, meeting out justice. Why not five? Their commission is not one of grace and mercy. See how useful Eastern thinking is? Then I answered and said unto the angel that talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said unto me, These are the four spirits of the heavens, which go forth from standing before the Lord of all the earth. The black horses, which are therein, go forth into the north country, and the white go forth after them, and the grizzled go forth toward the south country. Here they are given their assignments upon the earth. Black and white are to go north. Thus, death and victory for the direction of Jerusalem's greatest vulnerability. This seems to leave red and pale, war and disease, for the south countries. But instead, only the pale horse, disease, is mentioned. And the bay went forth, and sought to go that they might walk to and fro through the earth. And he said, Get you hence, walk to and fro through the earth. So they walked to and fro through the earth. Then cried he upon me, and spake unto me, saying, Behold, these that go toward the north country have quieted my spirit in the north country. Red is missing here because war is not part of the Lord's punishments at this time. The horsemen say as much when they say that all the world is at rest. The greatest rabbis of Israel have studied these verses and in the end have to admit that their explanations are not satisfying. A few have had to admit that the words used in verse 7 are words of great antiquity, and the meanings are not clearly understood. Either way, when disease makes the request to journey to and fro, he is given permission. Black and white's presence in the north serve to quiet the Lord's spirit in regard to issues in the north. All of these warriors and their war horses have their effect. They give the nations something other than Israel to worry about. In the relative distraction of the nations, the rebuilding of the temple can continue. We read, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Take of them of the captivity, even of Heldai, of Tobijah, and of Jedidiah, which are come from Babylon, 
and come thou the same day, and go into the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Then take silver and gold, and make crowns, and set them upon the head of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest. Here the prophet is told to gather gold and silver from the Jews returning from Babylon, and use it to continue the work of the Lord's house. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crowns shall be to Halem, and to Tobijah, and to Jedidiah, and to Hen, the son of Zephaniah, for a memorial in the temple of the Lord. And they that are far off shall come and build in the temple of the Lord, and ye shall know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. And this shall come to pass, if ye will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. This serves again as a symbol of one eternal round. The high priest, supported by the people, is Yeshua. As he stands ready to accept the sacrifices of the people, to prepare the holy house of the Lord, so shall the one from Nazareth, the place of the branch, do the same. The Lord can smile upon this moment because it is in some sense a rehearsal for a greater moment when the actions will be repeated, but in holiness. These rehearsals do, and will yet stand, as lessons given at the hand of our all-seeing Teacher of Righteousness, who will soon walk among us again. Zechariah 7.1 And it came to pass on the seventh day of December, in the year 518 B.C., being the fourth year of King Darius, and the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. When they had sent unto the house of God, Sherezer and Regemelech, and their men to pray before the Lord, and to speak unto the priests which were in the house of the Lord of hosts, and to the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month over the temple, separating myself, as I have done these so many years? The point here is an interesting one, both for what the people are asking, as well as for what the Lord replies to their inquiry. Festivals and feasting in Israel were understood by them to be rehearsals, where they prepped for the great day of consummation, when the God of all would return to take Israel unto himself as bride and save mankind. When they lost Solomon's temple due to their wickedness, some of their days of celebration were turned into days of mourning. Fasting is not as good as feasting. This is the point which the elders of Judah made to the Lord during his earthly ministry, when it was learned that the disciples were not practicing the mourning rites in the days of Jesus. Here is the event as recorded by Peter in the testimony of Mark. Mark 2.15 And it came to pass that as Jesus sat at meat in his house, many publicans and sinners sat also together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, and they followed him. And the disciples of John the Baptist and of the Pharisees used to fast. And they came and say unto him, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast? but thy disciples fast not. And Jesus said unto them, 
Can the children of the bride chamber fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them. And then shall they fast in those days. It is culturally inappropriate, and indeed rude, to fast and be in mourning when the bridegroom is with his intended. It is a time of feasting and rejoicing, not a time of sorrow. In the end, the Lord was denied his wedding during his mortal ministry, so it was postponed until his second coming. Now you can better understand these cryptic words of our Lord. Mark 14.25 Verily I say unto you, Of this ye shall bear record, for I will no more drink of the fruit of the vine with you, until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. It is appropriate for the body of Christ to meet in solemnness, letting their rejoicings be in the spirit and in the heart, reverently preparing themselves for the better day. It would be unwise to claim our rejoicings now, like so many of the secular Christians do in their praise concerts. Let's continue with Zechariah. Zechariah 7.4 Then came the word of the Lord of hosts unto me, saying, Speak unto all the people of the land, and to the priests, saying, When ye fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month over the loss of the temple, even though seventy years in Babylon, did ye at all fast unto me, even to me? And when ye did eat, and when ye did drink, did not ye eat for yourselves, and drink for yourselves? Fascinating. The Lord was asking here about the purpose and intention of their fasting. Were they fasting because they were told to do so? Were they fasting because it was tradition? Were they even fasting just because they missed the temple? Then, when the fast was over, did they take joy in the blessing of their food and its sustaining nature, associating it with the Lord? I believe that members of the restored church today understand fasting correctly. I have been taught many times since my youth that proper fasting is a form of inward meditation with a purpose. Fasting when done with a prayerful heart and with a desire to commune with God has the power to change lives, conquer the flesh, and open the windows of heaven. This is mainly due to the fact that sacrifice is a true law of heaven. Fasting is a sacrifice, and sacrifice always gets the Lord's attention. A man or woman willing to obey and sacrifice himself for the Lord is standing vicariously next to the Son of God who sacrificed everything to gain the blessing of the Father. Satan has done a royal number on secular Christianity by associating the power of fasting with their false concept of good works. Most of Christianity today believes that any good work done by man for salvation places pride in the heart and robs the grace of Christ of its power. This is satanic thinking. The scriptures clearly teach that good works, as ordained by God, give man access to the grace of Christ. This is clearly taught in the Holy Scriptures. It was clearly understood until the great apostasy destroyed the authority of the Catholic Church and Martin Luther reinterpreted the Bible to say that grace alone was needed. Many of God's children will discover Satan's ruse much too late. But back to Zechariah. Should ye not hear the words which the Lord hath cried by the former prophets, when Jerusalem was inhabited and in prosperity, and the cities thereof round about her, 
when men inhabited the south and the plain? This is once again a call to remembrance, as in the first vision. Prophet after prophet had warned Israel for five hundred years, and yet the people were surprised when the word of the Lord came to pass. What are the warnings of our day, and what are we growing tired of hearing? The Lord here recounts the past. This is history that is known to Judah. It also stands as justification for all the trials that have come upon a people so blessed of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment, and shew mercy and compassion every man to his brother. And oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor. And let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. The Lord's true commandments have always been short and simple and easily explained. Ten commandments that can fit onto a three-by-five card and slipped into your wallet, and yet. But they refused to hearken, and pulled away the shoulder, and stopped their ears, that they should not hear. Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts hath sent in his spirit by the former prophets. Therefore came a great wrath from the Lord of hosts. The English translators had no idea what to do with this verse, and so they chose to go with the spirit of the message, that the people hardened their hearts like stone, and would not soften their wills, that the Lord might teach them. Here is what the Hebrew actually says. And they made their hearts as hard as a shamir worm, in order not to listen to the Torah and to the words of the Lord of hosts, sent both through his spirit and by his earlier prophets. A shamir what now? Rabbinic tradition holds that there is a worm, an actual living thing, called a shamir, that the Lord created which is capable of splitting solid stone. The Talmud says that Moses had one, and that it engraved the stones of the Ephod. Solomon had one for use in cutting the temple stones to exactness. Rabbi Rashi said that it was so good at this that all you had to do was show a stone to a shamir, and it would split it in two. It was sort of like a super laser beam worm. As strange as this sounds to modern ears, there is a very peculiar picture of one carved in a relief in the ruins of the Temple of Dandara in Egypt. Who can say? You know, Peter, let's post pictures of this on the website. Let's do it. Are you beginning to better appreciate the rabbi's insistence that only the Messiah will be able to explain this book as well as parts of the law? It's going to be fun to hear him. Either way, you don't want your heart to be as tough as a stone-cutting worm, nor adamant for that matter either. Therefore, it is come to pass that as my prophets cried, and Israel would not hear, so the people cried, and I would not hear, saith the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations whom they knew not. Thus the land was desolate after them, that no man passed through nor returned. For they laid the pleasant land desolate. Are we in our day guilty of making our hearts as an adamant stone? What would happen were we to listen and soften our hearts to the still small voice and to our teachers of righteousness? Would the Lord take our stony hearts and give us new ones? 
How many human foibles and cries of, but God made me this way, could be answered with, son or daughter? See, I have taken your weakness and your stony heart away, and have made that which was weak unto you a strength. I have given you a new heart, to no more desire to do evil. Why don't we listen to he who made us? Do we believe he can't remake us? What does your heart of stone say in reply? But the Lord was not done speaking. Again the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. After recounting the reason for casting Israel as bride aside, the Lord admits that as bridegroom, absence did make his heart grow fonder. After a period of time he says he missed Israel, and wanted to try again. Thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, There shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for every age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. A beautiful picture of family and peace, old and young, grandpa and granddaughter, all happy again. As impossible as it may have sounded, starting at the ruins of a once mighty city, it was possible, and more, it would yet come to pass. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, If it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it not also be marvelous in mine eyes? saith the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, in truth and in righteousness. The best was yet to come, but there were things that this generation needed to do to prepare for it. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, ye that hear in these days these words by the mouth of the prophets, which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before these days there was no hire for man, nor any hire for beast, neither was there any peace to him that went out or came in because of the affliction. For I set all men every one against his neighbor. But now I will not be unto the residue of this people, as in the former days, saith the Lord of hosts. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her fruit, and the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. One of the many wonderful things about our God is his consistency. As the people then surveyed the monumental challenges ahead, the Lord's advice is the same again. Satan would have the nations believe that our God is a God of wrath, unrelatable and unreasonable. The truth is that our God is a God of meekness and simplicity. He wants us to help one another, be kind and honest, and ever ready to point the way to those who are seeking him. And it shall come to pass that, as ye were a curse among the heathen, O house of Judah, and the house of Israel, so will I save you, and ye shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, 
as I thought to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, saith the Lord of hosts, and I repented not. So again have I thought in these days to do well unto Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear ye not. These are the things that ye shall do. Speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. And let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor. And love no false oath. For all these are things that I hate, saith the Lord. The Lord speaks the truth, and makes deals, or covenants, in truth. He does this openly. He does this because he is faithful. The Lord never makes a deal, or speaks a word, that he will not bring to pass. And the word of the Lord of hosts came unto me, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah joy and gladness, and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love the truth and peace. These were fasts of mourning for the loss of Jerusalem. But God was changing their perspective on this as well. Now their fasting was to be in joy for the blessings they knew they would receive at the hand of a Lord who never lies. Do we take joy in our assignments of preparation? In our ministering teaching? In our church and temple work? I'm trying to. The prophet is then shown the end result of their obedience, far into the future. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, It shall yet come to pass, that there shall come people, and the inhabitants of many cities. And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the Lord, and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. Yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem, and to pray before the Lord. All Israel knew that the Lord had chosen them to be a special light to the world. The greatest failure of their culture was that they had not become a light, but a hiss and a byword. The Lord shows them that by the start of little things, things that didn't seem possible or necessary in a field of ruins, that great things would yet come to pass. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. The Jews say that at the fall of the Tower of Babel, the Lord broke the language of man into seventy tongues. Here's a chance to practice your new Eastern mystical number skills. Why are the seventy called the seventy? See if you can do it. Here's a hint. One per tongue and seven times ten. Each of these seventy clans will send ten men who will search out a Jew of Jerusalem and say, Can we go with you to Jerusalem? We know that God is with you there. That will bring joy to so many faithful Jews who know that they were born to be that kind of light and example, instead of being seen as a mockery. Thus, despise not the little things. Get that temple built. Get your church duties done. God is with us. Wow, what an amazing feast. But we are not yet finished with this season in our series. So, until next time, may you too seek out the Lord. In his holy name, Jesus Christ, amen.